you to bless this time as we look at your word. Guide and lead us and help us to see what you would want us to see from this. Help us to understand your word and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Second Chronicles 4, we're continuing the, the building of, the t- of Solomon's temple uh, to God. And so in chapter 4, we start at verse 1. Moreover, he made an altar of brass, 20 cubits in length thereof, and 20 cubits in breadth thereof, and 10 cubits in height thereof. Also, he made a molten sea of 10 cubits from brim to brim, round in compass, and 5 cubits in height thereof, and a line of 30 cubits did compass it around about. And under it was the similitude of oxen that, which did encompass around about it, ten in, 10 in a cubit encompassing the sea round about. Two rows of oxen were cast when it was cast. It stood upon 12 oxen looking toward, three looking toward the north, three looking toward the west, three looking toward the south, three looking toward the east, and the sea was set above them, and all their hinder parts were inward. And the thickness of, the, of it was a handbreadth, and the brim of it, the work of a brim of a cup, like flowers of lilies, and they re- received and held 3,000 baths. So we're going to talk about these real quick. Uh, first off, we start out with the altar that they made. This altar, 20 cubits, was about 30 feet by 30 feet by by 15 feet high. That's a pretty big altar. (laughs) Uh, You could put a lot of animals on that altar. Uh, 30 feet square, I don't even know how they would get the animal to the middle of the altar. Uh, You know, throw the sheep out there in the middle and put the cows on the outside, the oxen on the outside. Uh, But he made everything about this temple is super large. You know, much bigger than the tabernacle was, much bigger than anything else. Um, for a couple reasons, they were making it in the honor of God. It was never to be moved. The tabernacle had to be moved all the time. Uh, so they made this super-sized altar. And in reality, they probably needed a super-sized altar because Jerusalem was getting bigger and bigger every year. And you had to be able to put all those sacrifices being made on the altar. And this was a huge altar. The next, next verse goes, And also he made a molten sea of ten cubits from brim to brim, round in compass, and five cubits in height thereof, and the line of thirty cubits did compass about. So he made a great big washing area fifteen feet across. That's a pretty big side. That's a, that's a pool. <laughs> and... The height of it was seven and a half feet. So we have a very, very large pool, basically. (laughs) He needed ladders to be in and out of it. I'm sure there had to be some ladders in it because this, uh, what they called the sea, was where the priest would cleanse themselves as they were getting ready to go in and do service. So they definitely had to have a ladder. They had to learn to swim, (laughs) to be able to swim. Now, one of the things about this verse is also this verse is where a lot of people will claim that the Bible has an error. Because they will look at this and say, you have a 10-cubit diameter, and they said that it took a 30-cubit diameter 
roots to go around it. Now, if you know your mathematics, which many of you probably do not, the circumference is pi times the diameter. Pi is roughly 3.14 times 10 gives you 31.4 cubits. And they go, see, there is a problem in the Bible. It lied. Uh, now, the very interesting thing about this is, verse 5 gets the answer to this. There's a rim around that of a handbreadth all the way around it. A handbreadth is roughly 4 inches. So all the way around, so you take from your 10 cubits, you take 4 inches from each side of it, which would be 8 inches. That works out to be approximately 0.44 cubits. You take that away from the 10 cubits, you end up with 9.556 cubits. You multiply that times 3.14, and you end up with 30.02. 30.02, even in our measurement system, is pretty darn accurate uh, to say that it was 30 cubits. So it is very funny because people, and this is what I've said about many of the quote-unquote errors in the Bible, people aren't looking at the details. They just look and say, well, see, this is an, this is an error right there. 10 cubits is is not a 30, in, a 30, 30 cu uh, cubit circumference, but they don't read on and find out, hold it, we've got a rim around that, and they would have measured in the inside of it, and it works out to be perfectly correct. <laughs> so when, when you hear people say, well, there's errors all over the Bible, number one, they haven't researched them, number one, they haven't looked at them, and this is one of the ones that they will look at and it's not an error when they read everything about the section. Read the whole thing, just like we tell people in math, because this is a classic math problem. You have this, it has a diameter of this, and it has a rim of this. What's the circumference? Uh, what's the area? And the very first thing you're taught is subtract that <laughs> rim from it to get the, get the proper circumference. Uh, so this is a classic math problem and people make it jump right in it and say, well, I can multiply pi times 10, and it's, it's more than 30. Uh, and so just when you hear these people say there's errors, challenge them, number one, to find them, because most of the time they don't even know any of the errors that they're going to point out. And then number two, there's answers for everything that they're going to claim is an error. And this is a big one. This is one of the big ones that people try to to go jump on the Bible and say, look, this is an error. And the sad thing is a lot of people say, well, the Bible likes to round down numbers. And I go, you don't have to go that way. Go with what the Bible says. All right? It's not rounding down the 31.4 down to 30. It is, they measured from the inside of it, and it is almost perfectly 30 cubits. And that 0.21,000, uh, uh, is close enough to 30 cubits to, to say 30 cubits. <laughs> because uh, we would have a little trouble getting down one, two one-thousandths of a, of a cubit measurement uh, in today's world as well. So the uh, reason I bring this up is just because I want us to really understand that we can trust God's word. In each place we can trust it and know that what the Bible says is true. This is not a math book, it's not a math calculation, but when God puts a math calculation in, it works out to be correct. When you look at the dimensions of the ark, 
they have actually tested the dimensions of the arc in, in wave tanks and everything and found out it's almost impossible to capsize a vessel with those measurements, it, which is a perfect thing because God was going to put them through quite a, quite a storm that needed to be able to be very seaworthy. And, you know, so we look at these and go, God, you have done everything for us. You have helped keep this working for us. And where we find these things, we find perfect logic being presented. And everything fits into what God says. So when I come across these errors as we're going through the Bible, I bring them up so that you're aware of them. And you, may, you probably aren't going to remember the math behind this, but when somebody says, well, see, there's this error here, and you're going, well, let me go back and get those numbers for you. But that's already been explained, and it's, it, you have to take the rim away from the, away from the bowl. <laughs> And so just be aware that there's always answers for these uh, processes. All right, so we have this perfect mathematics equation in the Bible. (laughs) Um, In verse 3 says, And under it was the similitude of oxen, which did compass it around about ten in a cubit, compassing the sea round about. Two rows of oxen were cast when when it was cast. So here we have a 15-foot bowl with little kind of oxen-shaped balls because there's 10 of these little oxen-shaped balls in each cubit, which means that there is, they are not very big. They're about an inch and a half, uh, about an inch and a half, inch and an eighth, depending on how much room they put between them, little oxen on this little uh, probably bar and mostly is going to be to the whole 15 feet of it or very close to it, holding this up. I do not understand what Solomon was doing putting oxen all over this, this temple. Uh, didn't find any satisfactory answers anywhere that I looked. Uh, but he's got these oxen, row of oxen that are going to be there, and there's two rows of them, so there's two bars underneath this, this uh, huge bath and then on that it all stood on 12 oxen that were three facing each 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 direction of the compass so these are big oxen yeah yeah literally car, uh, carved like, yeah, carved well melted with you know yeah, yeah. card melted covered with gold whatever brass whatever these ones were and they stood under it, so you've got basically the 15 feet around this thing, and you've got oxen on all sides of it uh, holding it up. And then you've got these little bars with little oxen all the way <laughs> around it. Uh, so this was not the design of the original laver, brass laver that the priest washed in on it. It's much, this one is much bigger. Uh, they had a much smaller one that they, t- they cleaned up uh, before service in. And now we've got this huge thing that they call a sea. You know, I call it a, a swimming pool, basically, because it has the dimensions of a fairly good-sized swimming pool uh, at, at 15 feet around. And so we have these really interesting things. And these oxen looked outward. This is what he said in... in uh, Verse 4, their hinter parts were 
were towards the inside. So their, their backsides were holding this thing up and the front sides were outside of the bowl, outside of this bath. And holding this thing up. And he said the thickness of it was a hand breadth. So about a four inch rim all the way around this, this pool. And it says it had flowers and lil of lilies engraved all around the top of this top of this. So you got oxen holding it up and lilies engraved all through it. And we see this and then it says it held 3,000 baths of liquid. When you multiply that out, a bath is approximately a little over four, uh, five gallons of, of water. This thing held about 17,435 and a half gallons of water. It's got more water than a swimming pool even on it. So it's, because uh, I looked that up, how much water goes into a 15 foot, foot pool. And so you really have to have a pretty deep pool to be able to put 17,000. This is for the priests only to clean themselves before they went to service. What did the, what did the oxen represent? I looked it up, nobody gave a really solid answer because I'm thinking the the golden calf and all of that stuff, so I don't know. And some people said that it was from those religious, and some people said other things, and I don't. Nobody really gave a satisfactory answer that I found. And because I've been bothered by this, why do you have oxen under all? The priest, Aaron's sons, would be able to, would be cleaned up and on. Because uh, you go into the Levitical laws, they would be cleaned up at the uh, labor that was there, they cleaned up and then they were, put on their priestly garments and did their service. And it's not the Levites that get to do, clean up here. We're going to see that they have someplace else to clean up. Solomon is making these things so much bigger than the originals. Uh, part of it, I think, he wanted it, to be, he wanted it to please God. He wanted to be, in one side, I think he wanted it to be a tribute to him and his father, as well as to God. So let's just make things really, really big. In his mind and so and remember who made these plans was David and David said God gave him the plan so God may have a reason for all of these things that I don't understand a 30-foot altar square altar is a pretty big altar uh, a 15-foot you know cleansing area for the priest that is seven and a half feet deep is almost overkill, I think, for, you know, the cleaning that they had to do. And like you say, there had to be some kind of, you know, there had to be a way to get in and a way to get out. But you also have these oxen underneath it, so I don't know how they got in and out of this thing without, because you, you think it's seven and a half feet, but now it's sitting on oxen. <laughs> so it's not even, it's not even on the ground level at six and a, at seven and a half feet. And I don't know how big these oxen were to, to sit on, but there's three on each side, so they can't be full size, but they still had to be three or four feet. We don't really have a listing of what they yeah. do. We have to go with what they did in the Levitical days and apply it to what they're going to do here. But this is a huge altar that's been built. This is a huge air, uh, bath uh, uh, laver to be able to be cleaned for just the priests. And it uses a lot of water, all right? And it has been suggested because the water is so much that there was some kind of 
fall or something to make it stay purified and cleansed out. But you also got to figure every if you've got to have some kind of filtering system, otherwise that water is going to get dirty. You're going to have to empty it and refill it again. And the ancient people were not as dumb as we think they are, so they probably had some kind of some kind of filter and some kind of waterfall to bring it back in and some kind of circular pump and Solomon was considered the wisest man in new science and everything and probably understood hydraulics and probably had some kind of pump system involved with it. So it would not surprise me because something had to filter this water. Uh, you weren't dumping this water out every, you know, let's, let's dump 17,000 gallons of water out, 17,500 gallons of water out every every week or something and fill it back up is not happening. <laughs> so there had to be some kind of filtering system that he had installed in it that's not mentioned. All right, what it was, I don't know. You know how they would filter it, how they would maneuver it, I don't know. I'm not somebody that understands hydraulics that well. Maybe somebody who understands hydraulics could figure this out, but I, I don't know it that well. But we do know that Many of these places had pump systems and everything. They had manual ones that people just stepped on all the time and kept, kept things pumping. Uh, they had some that were used, they actually used the flow of the water to be, to keep the systems moving. So we have all kinds of ways things happen. And what it was for here, I don't know. But there had to be something. There's way too much water for it to just sit there. But one thing about these things is, if you look into our, old archaeology, they will show you that these guys had indoor plumbing and, and water that, that flowed around and everything, you know. That's uh, amazing. Because we get stuck in this mentality of our world that the further back you go, the stupider people are. We have had indoor plumbing off and on for millennia and pumps and, and systems of pumping and flowing and you know, sometimes you, it was just gravity feed. You had somebody filling the big buckets at, way at the top and gravity fed your on-off switches. Sometimes they actually had pumps that, that did these things. So, you know, but because we are so bought into this evolution cycle that man had to be stupid earlier and we know everything, they could not have known it, is a really sad thing. Because the more we dig up, the more we find amazing, amazing things. The Egyptians had batteries. They had electric motors of some sort. Not, not the kind that we, I'm sure not as powerful as we had, but they had batteries and electric, you know, electric currents flowing around. And this is the thing we have to be careful of is, in, you know, when we take a biblical point of view, Adam and Eve were taught directly by God. Cities were being built within a couple centuries of creation because because uh, Cain builds a city. So we've got all these things going on, you know, metallurgy and musical instruments and brass and everything before the flood that was being, being developed. So they had to relearn everything after the flood. So we actually got stupider than, <laughs> than we were created and had to relearn lots of things and over the years, we've had to relearn everything over and over again because every time a civilization fell, the barbarians conquering it going, this is all magic and this is, this is scary stuff, and they destroyed it and didn't have the science to recreate it until they became the, the, the civilization and learned all the stuff that they had destroyed. And then 
another civilization will come in and destroy them and destroy all their, all their stuff. Uh, so this has been a cycle all through history of destruction of things, and it has only really been since about the Greek Empire that we haven't totally destroyed all knowledge with every destruction of the empires. And you know, the Greeks di didn't destroy it, the Romans didn't destroy it, and the Ottomans didn't destroy it, and Greeks and Ottomans did a good job of preserving knowledge so that there was a different mentality from that point, and we didn't have to relearn all of our mathematics and science over and over and over again. Um, but all of this happened because these nations would be conquered, and it's like, well, they can do things that are, you know, we don't understand them. There's got to be the magic. We've got to get rid of this, you know, it's dark, dark magic, and, get, you know, uh, and we conquered them, so it's got to be bad, and they would destroy it all. And this happened over and over again. But because we are, have bought into this whole idea of evolution and everything getting better and smarter and, bet and better, we kind of go, okay, yeah, they were dumb. One day there were these cavemen that discovered that there was fire and, and managed to use fire. And then they managed to figure out how to make a wheel. We got to be able to get away from this indoctrination we have from the world. Because Satan likes it that we think that we were stupid. The cavemen were existed before the flood or after? It's probably after Babylon and the mixing up of the languages. As you're driving all over the place and you're getting to a new place, where do you? Where do you live? The first place that you can. Caves would have been the first place that they would have thought to live until they could build their houses. And they weren't stupid when they were there. They were coming from Babel, that, uh, Babylon that had great knowledge. So even then they weren't stupid. It was just a convenient place. If you're lost out in the wilderness, you have a choice to either cut down a bunch of trees and make a, a lean-to or stay in a cave. You're going to stay in the cave for a while. Uh, until you t make a nice building outside. There was no such thing as the stupid Neanderthal caveman. And even Neanderthal is a human being that was suffering from rickets. That's why they had the knobby joints and everything, is that they, they found out, you know, if they've done studies on it, that they had rickets. So they were just human beings. <laughs> and this is the funny thing. Every time they do studies, they find out that these near-human uh, fossils are actually humans that they just had a presumption that they weren't. And so they've made all kinds of things. So we need to make sure we're understanding, do we, do we start with the Bible and then apply the Bible to what we're, what we're being shown and find out that the Bible eventually is what ends up being true. Verse 6, And he also made ten labors and put five on the right hand and five down the left to wash in them such things as they offered for the burnt offerings they washed in them, but the sea was for the priest to wash in. And he made ten candlesticks of gold according to their form, and set them in the temple, five on the right hand and five on the left. And he made also ten tables and placed them in the temple, five on the right and five on the left. And he made a hundred basins of gold. All right, so here's the next thing he's building. Ten lavers. These are basically great big places. They're cleaning washing off the sacrifices before they throw them on the fire. The priests would have used them, the, the Levites would have used them for cleaning up a little bit themselves. So there's five on each side of the temple so that they can get the items ready to be offered. Now remember, we as Gentiles think of only one offering. 
and that would be the burnt offering. That's how we usually think of it. In the, in the burnt offering, the entire offering was put on the fire, but there were many other offerings that were made. So very few of them burnt the entire animal. And so when people brought their animals in, they would use these 10 tables. The Levites would come along. They would kill the animal. They would skin the animal. The Levites got to keep the, the skin for the animals, and they could tan, they could tan them and make leather and, and whatever they wanted to do with that. That was their special pay for doing this. Then they would cut the animal according to the offering that was being made. God, in all the offerings, got the in, internal parts, the heart, the liver, the, all of those parts were washed and put, put on the altar, and then he got some other part of the animal, depending on the offering, up to half of the offering in many cases. And the priest also would get part of these offerings. So, uh, like in the Thanksgiving offering, the person would receive back half of the offering, the forward half of the arm and everything would be given to God to be burnt, and the priest would get the the back half, so basically they got hams. <laughs> uh, not that they had pork, but they had the ham portion, the, the, the back shank. And that's what they would get. And the rest of it went to God and to the, back to the giving, person giving the offering. So there was a lot of work going on there. These, these Levites got to be very good butchers. They knew the cuts of the meat very well and knew how to cut that meat up very quickly because it needed to get taken care of and properly distributed for hundreds if not thousands of people coming in to make offerings and they had to be very quick at this so they had to get very quick at cutting these animals and skinning them and be good at it and this was their whole process and Solomon made 10 tables for this to happen and he and this was for their burnt offerings and washing washing them in but the priest only used the sea and now he says he made 10 candlesticks according to their form. Now, nobody knows exactly the form that they're referring to. Most people believe that it was fashioned after the menorah, the original menorah, and put in here. Now, this is quite interesting. In the tabernacle, you had one candlestick with seven prongs on it for light. Solomon makes seven candles, uh, 10 candles. For, for the light and puts it into the temple, which... A lot, huh? lot more light. A lot more light in this temple. A little bit bigger building, but it's not a, not a whole lot more uh, building. The Jews tended to have a saying back there that uh, Lightfoot caused, that they, that they believed that the growing light was necessary to counteract the growing darkness. So they're taking it from a spiritual place. Things were getting darker and darker, so we need more and more light. I don't like that because light, darkness never conquers light. So, but I understand in one sense, I'd like to have more and more light as we go, as we're going in the spiritual world. But we don't, again, one of the things that's in this is we're not explained why Solomon does what he's doing. All we're told is what he does. Moses spoke very clearly that he was making things exactly the way God told him to make it because it was patterned after, after the heavenly temple. Solomon 
is taking his plan from David, which David says he got it from God, and I've got to believe that he did because it says what it says, but everything is larger. Everything is larger than it was in the tabernacle. Everything is more than it was in the tabernacle. So I don't know what's going on here, and there's no explanation to what it is other than David saying he got the plans from God. On the butchering of the animals, how it was done and all that. Yeah, the Levites were taught how to do it. Right, and we don't know exactly where, where those are. But the Jews to this day seem to have instructions for it. They are training, they are training the priest in the instructions that they have somewhere on how to properly cut, cut up the animals for offerings. Uh, where they have it, I don't know. They, they've got some books, you know, the Levites have probably been protecting their instruction manual very well over the years. But they are teaching people. They, they've already selected all their, their priests and taught them how to do this. They are ready for the temple to be built. They've trained their and they've trained the priest on how to do it. Well, they're not actually offering the sacrifice, but they've probably been cutting up the animals for the sacrifices just to learn how to do it. How they're doing that, I don't know. All I know from everything I've been told, they're already trained, they're already set. So at some point that will start again. Oh, there's definitely a time it's going to start. Their third temple is going to be built. They will be offering sacrifices during the beginning, the beginning of the tribulation period. Uh, and that is when Satan will stand in the anvil and say, worship me, I am God. And that is when they're going to recognize that they have been tricked. But there's no reason to build the temple for sacrifices if you're not sacrificing. And the Orthodox Jews want sacrifice because they recognize the Bible says that there is no remission from sin without the shedding of blood. And so they have trouble with this whole idea because right now the Jews are saying, do more good than bad and you're going to be okay with God. And the Orthodox are looking at this saying, we can't find that in the Bible. Uh, we need to get our sacrifices so that we can be forgiven. And so they're desperately wanting a temple and sacrifices. When Jesus returns, they will have their eyes opened. And they will recognize that he has come back and he's their Lord. All right. But until then, they're wanting the sacrificial system. And this isn't the first time that they've had the do more good than, than bad to be, be saved. Because when the first temple was destroyed and they were in captivity... They did not have sacrifices, and they had the same thing. We've got to do good to, good, more good than bad because we don't have a sacrifice. They're very pragmatic per people. <laughs> and we don't have an offering, so we've got to do something else. But we want that temple so that we can do it the right way. All right, we got way off track here. So, oh, and built these tables. And then he made five, made a hundred basins or bowls of gold. You know, doesn't tell us again how big these bowls are. They were probably used for taking the, the flesh and putting it onto the altar or to get rid of the scraps that weren't going to be offered. We don't know exactly what it is, but there's a hundred of these. hundred bowls in the temple for ten tables, which means there would be the equivalent of ten bowls per table. The problem is we don't know anything about what they did in these, with all this stuff that was created that we don't know anything about. And even in the, in the Levitical order, we don't know everything they did. We just know what, David's, what God told Moses to do with certain parts. And Moses taught Aaron and his sons 
how to do everything that God showed him how to do, even though he didn't write it all in the book. So Aaron and his sons probably wrote an standards of operation manual uh, for the priests that they have been passing down, you know, generation by generation that the rest of the people don't know anything about. And so we have all of that going down uh, on this. So we, we have 10 candlesticks of gold, probably looking like the menorah. We have 12, uh, 10 tables and 10 wash, wash bowls, and we have 100 bowls <laughs> of some size. We don't know what they are. We don't know the size. It doesn't tell us. So we have a lot of stuff being built here. Verse 9 says, Furthermore, he made the court of the priest and the great court and the doors of the court and overlaid the doors of them with brass and set the sea on the right side of the east end over against the south. So here we have, he makes a court for the priest. This would be uh, an enclosure. Because remember, a division of priests and Levites were always in the temple. And they had to have some place to stay and live during that two-week period that they were in service. And we had an overlap on the Sabbath of each day. There would be two divisions working on the Sabbath because there's a lot of work to do on the Sabbath. And then at the end of the Sabbath day, one division would go home. The other would take over the, the enclosures of the, the priest and the little, little homes, you know, temporary homes. <laughs> You know, what was in it doesn't tell us. It just says he made enclosures for them. Uh, and the design is pretty intriguing. There's a whole bunch of rooms all along the outside edge, according to uh, Kings. And so we see that he made these things, and he made the great court, which is the outer court. So we have the Holy of Holies. We have the holy place. We have the inner court. Then we have the outer court that was out there. And all of this stuff on the outer court, he covered with brass. Now, this is kind of significant. Inside in the temple, everything is gold, which is the color of deity uh, in it. Outside, he's covering things with brass. Brass is the symbol for judgment. So you're going through judgment to get where the blood is shed, which is really the way things are with Jesus. When we're not inside the temple with him being covered by the blood, we're under judgment. And so here's the picture coming back out again of judgment. Everything on the inside is gold, royal, you know, deity. Outside is going to be brass. And when we did the temple, we talked all about these different colors and, and materials and everything that was out there. And so... But its brass still is very pretty, especially when it's polished. <laughs> and judgment has its good side and its bad side. You know, if you're the receiving of the judging, it's not very good at all. You don't like to be the one receiving judgment. But judgment also is that discipline that brings people around to obeying, uh, obedience. So judgment does have its good side. We don't like to be the object of <laughs> the judgment, even though we may deserve it at times, but ultimately this discipline should bring us back to God. And we so, so we see all of this. Verse 11 says, And Haran made the pots and the shovels and the basins, and Haran finished the work that he was to make 
for King Solomon, for the house of God, to wit, two pillars, and the pommels, and the calipers, and the top of the two pillars, and the two wreaths of the, that covered the two pommels of, of the calipers that were on the top of the, the pillars, and the 400 pomegranates on the two, on the two wreaths, and two rows of the pomegranates on the, each wreath to cover the top of the pommels of the chapters, which were on the pillars. And he made also bases and labor, and lavers made he upon the bases, one sea and twelve oxen under it. The pots also and the shovels and the flesh hooks and all the instruments did Haran the son, uh, his father, make unto the king Solomon for the house of the Lord of, of bright brass. In the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zerathah. Thus Solomon made all these vessels in great abundance, for the weight of the brass could not be found out. Now this is pretty amazing because we have had numbers up into the hundreds of thousands, and he says we did not know how much brass was used. There was just so much that nobody probably kept track of it. And so Haran is building these things, and it lists all, a lot of things. He, he made the pots, the shovels, the basins for, for Solomon. And you know, so these were shovels to get the coals out of the altar to get rid of anything else that needed to be moved out, uh, bowls that were being used for it, flesh hooks, all of these things he made. And then it lists everything we read in chapter 4, so we're not going to cover these real, real great. Uh, the two great big pillars on each side of the door, the tops of them, the caps of them, all the pomegranates around it, uh, the gold, the, the decorative pomegranates. Uh, and then it says in verse 14, something that wasn't mentioned earlier, he made also bases or pedestals and lavers. So these lavers that we talked about earlier, the ten lavers, had pedestals on them. And most of the pictures that I saw, you know, that, that I saw looked up, showed these pedestals having wheels so they were easier to move around and move from place to place. And I could picture that being the case. It's a lot easier to move it with wheels. This uh, King James version says carts. I like pedestals better, but carts would work. So, but everything I see showed kind of wheels on it so that you could move them around, which would make it a cart, I guess. And then he lists, you know, that he made these uh, lavers, on their, on their bases, he made the sea, the 12, the, the pots, the shovels, the flesh hooks. The flesh hooks were used by the priests to reach in to pull out the meat for their, for their dinners from the, from the various uh, pots that, from their, their food. Uh, all of these things Rand built for David, or for Solomon, excuse me. And they were all made out of bright brass, which means polished. <laughs> all right. And then a very interesting statement here in verse 17. In the plain of Jordan did the king cast them in the clay ground between Sukkoth and Zerathath, which is also Zerathan. All right. This location that is, is in there, we don't know exactly where Sukkoth is, but we do know where the other one is. It's approximately 40 miles away from Jerusalem. So they are casting this brass items about 40 miles away, and then bringing them into the temple. We're also told that all the rocks and all the things that they made were, were shaped and, and cut outside of Jerusalem so that there was no noise of construction being heard in the temple. Well, this is God's place. They didn't want to make a lot of noise for God. They wanted to make sure that they were worshiping and that it was all set for worshiping. So everything was done outside. 
Now, I don't know how they nailed together the wood without making a lot of noise and hammering, but uh, they probably found a way to do it. Um, so all of these things were going on, and it says, of all this, nobody weighed the brass. Nobody knows how much brass was out there. They had tons and tons of silver and gold, but nobody weighed the brass, which means that that had to have been in the multiple tons. And nobody, they got so much of it, nobody cared, I think, more than anything else. Because they could have easily measured it, because they had big numbers. But I think they just had so much to go, uh, we got more than we need. We're, we, we won't have to worry about it, so we're not going to, we're not going to go count it. Also, the fact, remember, Solomon and David even had so much gold and silver in the land that silver was worthless, was counted as dust, gold wasn't much better. So they had so much of it that they're looking at brass and going, we don't even care about the, care about the brass. There's lots and lots and lots of it. Who cares to count it? They, they made themselves count the silver because, okay, it's got some value, and the gold was still had value, so they counted it. This is how valuable, how much money and fortune Solomon had. And David accumulated the lion's share of this money going into the temple and, and put it out there. And verse 19, And Solomon made all the vessels that were for the house of gold, the golden altar also, the tables thereof, the showbread was set. Moreover, the candlesticks with their lamps that they should burn after the manner of the oracle of pure gold. And the flowers and the lamps and the tongs made he of gold, and that perfect gold, and the snuffers, and the basins, and the smoons, and the censers of pure gold, the entry of the house, the inner doors thereof, and the most holy place, the doors of the house, and the temple were of gold. So outside the, the main walls to the temple, brass. Inside, everything's gold. You know, Everything is gold, covered with gold, covered, you know, made of gold. All the tools that they use are gold. And it's kind of interesting, you know, the, the whole list that he puts in. He goes, the altar was gold, uh, the showbread altar was gold, and this altar that he's talking about here would be the incense altar inside the holy place. Uh, and the candlesticks were made out of gold with their lamps that they should burn after the manner of the oracle or the prophet. So this is why most people tend to believe it was probably designed as the seven-pronged seven uh, menorah, and there's ten of them in there now. Uh, all of those were pure gold. The, flan the little flowery bulbs on there that, that would burn. And remember that what they did is they had a special oil that they put in this that would run, that would bur be burnt o over time to, fill the, to keep these things burning. And this is the great miracle of the, that led to the Festival of Lights, or Hanukkah, the Maccabees, Rebel, led the rebellion, and they got locked up in the temple, and they had enough oil to burn one day, and the oil burned for seven days. All right, and they, they just considered it a miracle that God kept the oil. They did not have enough oil to burn, and that led to the celebration of Hanukkah, or the Festival of Lights, which is mentioned in the New Testament that Jesus celebrated the Festival of Lights and is still going on today. So Hanukkah is a long-standing holiday for the Jewish people. Uh, it's not a biblical holiday, but near, neither is Purim, and a, several of the other holidays are not biblical. They're just milestones. They're more like our Fourth of July 
you know, a national holiday that's important to America. All right, uh, so Purim and, and the Festival of Lights or Hanukkah are national holidays that are important to them because they celebrate big victories for them and miracle miracles. And so they had all of these, he says, the tongs and the snuffers. You know, snuffers are things you put over the candle to turn them off. Or, yeah, turn them off. <laughs> put them out. <laughs> I'm just thinking electrical terms here. You know, put them out and, and keep, them, keep them from burning. Uh, basins, spoons, censers, and the entry of the hall of the door to the house, the inner doors. And everything else about the inner, inner, inner part was all covered with gold. Lots and lots and lots and lots of gold. And they're going to engrave all that gold with uh, cherubim and palm trees. And so there's all, you got all this gold and it is all engraved. Now, the one thing I'm wondering is, were these engravings really deep and carved engravings or just engravings? I believe they were probably carved. They probably stood out in reliefs. Uh, it does say engraved, but I, you know, this guy's spending a lot of, you know, time and everything, and I think for the impressiveness of everything, they were probably more relief, relief type things where it stood out and deep carvings in them. I could be wrong, and it doesn't really matter, but, uh, and I've seen it both ways on, on the different pictures, because nobody knows the answer, but I really do think because of what they've done with everything else to make it stupendous, I believe they were probably more like relief carvings rather than just engraving. You know, let me let me carve my carve an angel on this in this gold wall. I think it literally was more of a almost three-dimensional angel, three-dimensional palm trees that were put in it, not just cut cut etches. I could be wrong, and it really doesn't matter. So. All of this stuff was going on, and we get to the end of this, and Solomon is getting ready to dedicate the temple in the next chapter. And we're going to see a great dedication ceremony coming out of all of this event coming through. Lord, we ask you to bless this time. Help us to always keep you forward and center and remember who you are and the greatness. Put our trust in your word, and we thank you for all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friends, where will you be when you die? We ask this question of a lot of people oftentimes, and the biggest answer we'll get is, I hope I will be in heaven. If hope is your answer, you don't know God, and this is a problem. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The wages of the sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you do not know for sure that you're going to go into heaven, please today make your decision to follow him. It is simply just ask him, Lord, I am a sinner. Please come into my life and save me and make him your Lord. If you've said that prayer, let us know so that we can send you a new believers packet. You can contact us at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or even pastor at chloridebaptistchurch.com. Or you can just send us a regular letter at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. Thank you very much for listening, and have a wonderful day.